feeling pretty good right now. I was uh, always a little nervous coming to see all you uh, Sunday morning people, but uh, while I was waiting off to the side, Owen came over and gave me a fist bump and said, good luck out there. So I, <laughs> I feel really good all of a sudden. So thank you, Owen. I appreciate that. Uh, we're here tonight, to, this morning, to, to wrap up our, uh, our series on guardrails. And uh, last week on Saturday night, Mark mentioned that when I get talking too fast, I tend to start saying guard whales. And uh, I, I thanked him for the constructive feedback. But then I really thought about it. I said, you know what? If you guys have a choice between me talking too fast and talking too much, uh, I think I know what you'll choose. And so, um, you know what they say, the only problem with talking too fast is that sometimes you haven't thought of what you're going to say yet. So... I'll try to slow down tonight. That was a joke. If, uh, if you're waiting for a better one, you, you might be waiting. So uh, you feel free to laugh at those. But uh, we've been, we're just finishing off our, uh, our fifth and final week of guardrails. And uh, if, if you've missed it, if you've missed all of them, or if you've missed some of them, you can go online, of course, and catch up. Um, and, you know, if, if, if you don't have time to listen to all five online, I would strongly suggest the first one and this one. They're... <laughs> They're really excellent, and uh, I would think that's what you want to listen to, but uh, I really do appreciate, uh, Mark, that he was willing to do the sex talk and the money talk, because I didn't want to. And so, in fact, I really enjoyed last week where Mark explained to us that when it comes to our finances, we need to avoid the ditch of hoarding on one side and that cliff of consumption on the other, which got me to thinking that his suggestion would be that we should drive right down the middle of the road. And... Uh, the legal department here at Kingsway Church wants me to make sure that you know he was speaking about the metaphorical guardrails, not the actual guardrails, because that would be dangerous. That was also a joke. Can we maybe get an applause sign that flashes behind me? You're crushing my confidence this morning. Owen. All right. Okay. Uh, but having said that, we're going to do a little review. So if you've been away or if you've, if you've been here, you've heard this before, and I think that's a good thing. But the first week, we talked about three principles, three principles of guardrails. And the first one was this. Guardrails are located in places where there's an increased level of risk. And so we talked about the idea of bridges, where there's less of a margin for error, or medians, where we're facing a, a rapidly moving traffic coming in the opposite direction, curves, where there's unexpected changes in direction, or steep drops, where we just have a greater risk of serious injury. And we recognize that that was true for us in our lives as well, that for each of us, we have different areas of risk, different areas that we might struggle with. And the second principle was this, guardrails are built on a place that is still safe to drive to make sure that you don't end up in a more dangerous place. And finally, principle three was, you will do less damage to yourself and to your vehicle when you hit a guardrail than you would have if you didn't hit the guardrail at all. And so for the past several weeks, we've been talking about this idea of how we take a literal guardrail, which we can define as this, a system designed to keep vehicles from straying into dangerous or off-limit areas, and we changed it. We changed that definition a little bit to say this, that guardrails in our lives are defined as a personal standard of behavior that becomes a matter of conscience. And so we put it this way, that financial cliff that you just drove off of, leaving you scrambling for your mortgage payment, what if there'd been a guardrail to stop you from making that decision? Or that relational ditch you slid your, your new car into and now your kids won't call you? Or that head-on collision with your boss and now suddenly you've lost your job and it all could have been avoided if you had some guardrails in place? Because chances are you pay very little attention to actual guardrails until you need them, but we do need them. 
And our culture has a few guardrails of their own. We talked about this first week as well. But they tend to be rather weak. They're more like white lines painted on the side of the road. Things like drink responsibly and consolidate your debt. They're actually not guardrails. They're just kind of mild suggestions because we don't want to upset anybody. And so I heard a great one this week. Know your limit, play within it. What's that from? The OLG, right? Casinos, that's their slogan. And I actually got thinking about it. I thought, that's actually not a terrible guardrail. It's, it's saying, you know, you should figure out if you're going to go to a casino what you can potentially lose safely and you shouldn't go beyond that. And the fact that it actually isn't a bad guardrail is probably why about a year ago they changed it. That's no longer their official slogan. They changed it to play smart. And that's what we expect from our culture, isn't it? Kind of a general idea. So uh, that's what they've changed it to. So I think we realize that we may need to enact our own guardrails because our culture's not going to do it for us. And it really is true what Mark shared a few weeks ago, that our culture baits us. It dares us towards a life of regret. And then they chastise people when they screw up. And so Mark led us through a number of very practical ways in which we can follow um, Paul's advice in Ephesians 5 when he says... We have to be thoughtful and intentional about how we live our lives in this world. He says we need to learn to be wise. And perhaps most importantly, we need to commit ourselves to these guardrails so strongly that it becomes a matter of conscience. In other words, we need for it to be automatic for us. If we rub up against a guardrail in our life, we need to instantly veer back onto the road. It's like we don't even think about it at the time. And that's because we've already thought about it. And so I want to I show you an example. Could I have a volunteer? Somebody, not Owen, who could be a volunteer. <laughs> Owen knows what it's all about. Owen was here last night. Is a volunteer out there? Maybe somebody wasn't here last night. Right here, right here. Big round of applause. Is it, is it Chris? I want to say your name is Chris. Is your name Chris? Karen. Would you like it to be Chris? Because <laughs> I've, I've got that in my head now, so fair enough. So this is Perrin. You all know Perrin? I'm going to wave at Perrin. He's standing up here, a little bit nervous. So here we go. Here, here's one thing we know from research, from, from hard research. There's really only two types of volunteers. So when I ask for a volunteer, there's only two types of people come, who would come up here, the right kind and the wrong kind. And so we're hoping we've got the right kind up here this morning because we're going to do a little uh, interesting experiment. So you guys all know what this is, right? Most trap, right? You all know how they work? Generally. Right, I was reading the back of the package on this, and this, this little thing is actually called the kill bar, which is, which is sad, but basically, you know, you set up the trap, and if the little guy goes on there, it snaps shut, and bad things happen. So uh, that, that's basically how they work, and I'll, I'll give you an example here. I'll give you, for your safety, I'll give you a pencil here. And so if you're just going to tap down on there, that's how it works. Piece of cake, right? Fair enough? You can keep the pencil if you like. You kind of hung on to it there, so... That's the joyous Sunday morning. Nobody got anything last night. But, uh, so I have a little example we're going to do with you. But uh, first, again, Kingsway Legal Department has asked me to get you to sign this waiver. So I just need you to sign here. Yeah. You can just fake sign it. Here. This is important. Uh, initial here. And, oh, there's always a back initial. Yeah, initial. Credit card information goes here. <laughs> Fantastic. No All right, so I'm going to hang on to that. We're going to grab our first aid kit. You never know. And so we're going to get you to do that again without the pencil. So don't, don't start without us. So we're going to put this here, and you're not going to touch it yet. 
Everybody see that in the back? Um, I'll use a bigger one. You guys can't see it at the back. So, <laughs> same idea here. This this is just uh, just a, uh, a rat trap instead. Same concept. It's, it's, uh, it's good though. It's the same idea. Bigger to see. You'll you'll be able to wait. The wa- the waiver doesn't cover that. Okay, we'll stick with it. All right. So here's what we're gonna do. On the count of three, they're three. So technically, they got you to do this. Okay. On the count of three, you're just going to put your hand down. It's, it's, it's in there, trust me. You ever notice you sign a waiver, they keep the waiver? How is that helpful for you, right? So anyway, so what we're going to do on the count of three, you're just going to put your hand down firmly, not yet, not yet, right over like that, and hold it down. Okay. And don't, don't release it till everybody's done cheering and chanting your name. Okay. All right? So... No, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Ready? Three, two, one. Keep it on there. Keep it on there. So here's, here's the idea. What you don't want to do is poke at it a bit and kind of like tentatively touch it. You just need to just automatically say, I'm doing this, or else it doesn't work. And, I, and you're very brave for doing it because I see you already have a Band-Aid on your finger, so... <laughs> We were practicing before, but uh, I actually, uh, I've been practicing all week, so I, don't, I actually don't want to hurt anybody, and hopefully it works out well. Um, and then I, I act to thinking, what if I'm just a mousetrap savant, and it, I'm good with it, and I do it every time, no problem, but a regular person, we'll put you in that category for now, um, might not be able to do it. So I made Candace do it, and it worked out fine, and uh, she's here today. Show us your fingers. Yeah, they're all there. We're good. So... What we're going to do on the count of three, you're just going to lift your hand up as quickly as you can, straight up. Ready? Three, two, one. There you go. And now your, your Christmas shopping has begun. There you go. I, I don't know who would want that, but somebody, Owen will want it for sure. We're, we're not going to give that to Owen. <laughs> Owen. Owen didn't sign the waiver. He's not getting that, so... Anyway, that's the concept. It's just this automatic thing. You don't play around with it. You don't kind of just poke at it. These guardrails that we have in our lives, it's a matter of conscience. It's just automatic. Whoa, I'm not doing that. No, I'm not getting involved in that. And that's what we mean when we talk about this matter of conscience, because this is not how guardrails work. You don't kind of bump up against a guardrail. And, and guardrail, did I say it? Guardrail. And, uh, and as you're bumping along it and sparks are flying everywhere, you don't lean out and look out the window and think, you know what, it's not that bad. I probably don't need this here at all. You, you rub up against a guardrail, you correct. You veer back onto the lane where you belong because that's how, that's how a guardrail works. And that's what we mean when we say it's a matter of conscience. Because regardless of how dangerous it looks, we know that we need those guardrails to be there. And so... Sorry. So when you come up against that guardrail, you have to correct. You have to just, as a matter of conscience, say, I'm not doing that. And, and uh, it's, it's so strong, that sense of your own conscience, you actually feel bad when you violate your own guardrails. If you get in, into a situation where you've, like, you've done something that you said you wouldn't do, you said, I'm not going to do that, I don't think that's smart, I don't think that's wise, you'll actually feel bad. But it's you, it's your guardrail that you violated, so you have more um, responsibility. You've taken more responsibility for it. And that's really the secret of living as wise, living without regret. And I, I know that when you're writing a sermon, you're supposed to end with a challenge or a call to action. Uh, I want to do mine now, though. 
because I think when it comes to guardrails, it's really important that you understand just listening to talks about guardrails will not change your life in any meaningful way. Guardrails are something that requires you to do something about it. You've got to make a choice to say, I'm going to put this here because it's an area of increased risk for me. So maybe you're sitting here today and you kind of have one of two obstacles in front of you as you're thinking about maybe uh, enacting some of these in your lives. And the first one is this. You may be thinking, you know what, this is really great. Uh, so many other people here need to do this. Um, people who st- I see people all the time who just struggle with making wise decisions. Maybe it's something that, you know what, young people should really do that. That's something that's important for them. Or you know what, married people. Married people should definitely get on board with that. Or maybe divorced people need that more. I don't know. Maybe it's the people in the back who need guardrails. Or maybe it's Saturday night people who need guardrails, right? Don't tell them I said that. And last night I didn't say, I didn't say Sunday morning. That would not be cool. So if, if that's one side, or maybe you're in this category, I'm not doing that. I mean, it makes total sense. In fact, it makes too much sense, really. It's kind of like common sense, but I'm not doing that because I don't want those guardrails to get in the way of stuff I want to do. Yeah, I don't want to give. I want to have. I don't want to be very, very careful. You you did do that Sunday morning, right? I probably should have checked. I don't want to be very careful. I just want to have fun. I don't want to wait for marriage. In fact, I just, well, I just don't want to wait. And, or maybe it's I don't want to live as wise because it seems like the unwise just has more fun. And he says it this way in his series. He says it's a little like wanting an A on a test but not being bothering to study. Or it's a bit like saying that guardrails don't protect me. They just get in the way. And so it's a bit like looking at this picture of my, uh, my beautiful minivan there and, and being angry about the fact that look at the damage to my bumper because of that guardrail, completely ignoring the fact of what could have happened if it had tumbled down into the ditch. It's that same idea. And if that's where you are tonight, uh, you you need to take some time to check your heart and really decide if you want to live as wise. It's it's true that tough decisions lie ahead for everyone, no matter how old you are, how young you are, where you are in your life. You're going to have tough decisions in the future, and they're going to require you to make wise decisions because that's how you live a life without regret. And so... We, I'll conclude, we conclude on the first night with simply saying this, nobody ever plans to mess up, but do we plan not to make mistakes, not to live with regret? And so as we conclude tonight, we're actually going to go back and look at a, a case uh, from the Old Testament, the example of a person who lived a life with guardrails, and we're going to take a look at uh, how their life kind of played out. Um, and it's the story of Daniel from the Old Testament, and you probably know two or three things about Daniel uh, that we all know. It's kind of part of what we what we have learned growing up. Um, you probably know seven or eight things if you're a fan of Veggie Tales. But in general, we, we don't know a lot of the kind of most important parts of Daniel's lives because we tend to hit on the cool things like a lion's den. Um, so if I just go through and just really quickly bullet point kind of his life, it wasn't an easy life for sure. As a young man in his early teens, he was growing up in a country at war. And even worse, he was living in a city under siege. And if you live in a city under siege, you have three enemies all equally capable of killing you. There's the army that's surrounding your city that if they get in, there's the hunger that gnaws away at you every single day because you can't get supplies into your city. And there's the disease that runs rampant because there's no fresh water and no sanitation. And so he's living in a city under siege, and it actually would have been a relief for him when the war ended 
even knowing his side lost. And so Daniel was captured by the enemy, and he watched helplessly as his family's wealth was stripped away and the temple was ransacked and eventually destroyed. And he was forced to leave his homeland and be taken away as a captive to a foreign land. There he was forced to serve as an indentured servant, which is a nice way of saying a slave. Even worse, he had to become a vegetarian, maybe even a vegan. He was sentenced to death not once, but twice. He had his friends thrown into a fire for literally for standing up for what they believed in. And he spent most of his life being led by a ruler that was angry and unpredictable, who made unreasonable demands of his people and endeavored to build on his southern border an enormous statue. No, the joke just doesn't work, all right? We're just, if it fails twice, it's done. So Now, you may think that Daniel would be better cast as a subject of a cautionary tale. Maybe you sometimes feel like your life is a little bit like this, that you live this life of regret. It could be that the purpose of your life is only to serve as a warning to others. Ever feel that way? Daniel could have felt that way. Daniel had a very difficult life. In fact, uh, but when I look at Daniel's life, I don't see someone filled with regret. In fact, I see somebody who lived a life free of regret. And so the story of Daniel begins for us about 2,500 years ago in a place called Iraq. Now, they didn't call it Iraq. They called it Babylon. And in 605 BC, Babylon was led by a king named Nebuchadnezzar. Got his picture here. Um, Well, they're, they're both actually artist renderings. I don't know which is more accurate, to be honest. No one actually has a picture, but there's how two different people uh, predicted he looked like, Mr. Nezer on the left there. But uh, is this is a guy who lived for real uh, um, thousands of years ago, and it's actually, you know, Nebuchadnezzar is a very fun name to say, not such a fun name to spell. So that's how you do that, Nebuchadnezzar. Um, but he was in the middle of a war with Egypt when his army arrived in Judah. And so if we, if we look at the map here, real, real briefly, Babylon's on the, not my thing here, Babylon's over here, and this is, this is what we would call Israel today. This is the land of Judah. There's Jerusalem there, and here's Egypt. And so what was happening was that Babylon and Egypt were in a war, and so every time Babylon would fight its way over and take over Egypt, they would put a king in place, uh, kind of a puppet king in place. And then they would leave and go back to Babylon, and the, and the Egyptian king kept rebelling. And so every time they left, he would basically take his army up to Jerusalem, and uh, the kings of Judah at the time kept siding with Egypt, which is hard to imagine, but they kept siding with Egypt. So in the end, um, Nebuchadnezzar was getting very angry with, with Judah as well as Egypt. And so he laid siege to the, siege to the city actually three times. But uh, the one we're going to read about first, he he laid siege to the city of Jerusalem, and they surrendered. And as a punishment for siding with Egypt, 10,000 of the best and the brightest of Jerusalem were captured and taken to Babylon, along with all of the gold from the temple. There was actually, of of these three campaigns, it was actually the middle one, but this all ended in 587 BC, when Nebuchadnezzar had had enough of uh, these, uh, these puppet kings not playing along. When he came in and actually destroyed the city, burned most of the city, uh, and actually destroyed the temple completely. And that's the temple that would have been built by King Solomon. And we know all of this because the Bible tells us, which itself is a historical document, but also that secular historians and archaeologists all know that these events took place. These people were real people, these places were real places, and these dates were real dates. And we can read about them in the book of 2 Kings, uh, chapter 24, 
as well as in the book of Daniel. And that's something I, I love about the way the Old Testament is written, that all these different documents, they all dovetail together and kind of give us a complete story. But we're going to start in Daniel, uh, starting right at the beginning of Daniel, starting in verse 1 of chapter 1, and it says this. During the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave them victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house of his God. And so that was the first, the first time he came. And he left a king behind, actually an 18-year-old king behind, to, to run things for him. But there's an important detail that's missing there that we can pick up if we go to the book of uh, 2 Kings to actually pick up the narrative rather than the story of Daniel. So in 2 Kings, it begins this way in in, uh, chapter 24, starting at verse 10. At that time, the officers of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, advanced on Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And Nebuchadnezzar himself came to the city while his officers were besieging it. Jehoiachin, king of Judah, his mother, his attendants, his nobles, and his officials all surrendered to him. In the eighth year of the reign of the king of Babylon, he took Jehoiakim prisoner. Now, we never actually hear um, what happened to him, but we're just going to read on to a couple more verses here. As the Lord had declared, Nebuchadnezzar removed the treasures from the temple of the Lord and from the royal place and cut up the gold articles that Solomon, king of Israel, had made for the temple of the Lord. He carried all Jerusalem into exile, all of the officers, the fighting men, and all the skilled workers and artisans, a total of 10,000. Only the poorest people of the land were left. And the reason we're going to focus on that last verse is because this is, this is counterculture to the day in which we're talking about. You see, this, this, is, this 10,000 is, is Daniel was one of those 10,000. But the thing about Nebuchadnezzar was he was obviously considered and is still considered to be a great military leader. But he's actually more well-known and more thought of highly as somebody who socially and culturally led his country. And so here's what would happen. When Nebuchadnezzar would conquer a new land, they would scour the cities and the countryside looking for the best of the best, the best tradesmen, the best warriors, the rich, the noble, the artisans. They would collect up philosophers and politicians, all of the elite of the society. And that wasn't new. Every conquering king would do that. But here's what was different for Nebuchadnezzar. When, he, when, when anybody else would have taken over an area, those people would have been jailed or killed. That's what you would do. You would take out the leadership of the country. You would get rid of all the, the, the best of the best. Nebuchadnezzar did the opposite. He collected up all those people, all the best and the brightest, and he took them back to Babylon. In the case of Jerusalem, he took 10,000 people back to Babylon. And as you may have guessed, Daniel was one of them. And so Daniel was brought to Babylon as a slave. It would have been different than what might we, think, we might think of as a slave because he would have arrived in Babylon in good health. He would have been taken care of. And once back in Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar ran a type of training program where he would strip away the culture and the religion of, from people's original culture and replace it with Babylonian religion and culture. They would learn their customs, their language, their religion, their traditions. They would eat their food, speak their language, listen to their music, uh, appreciate their art, worship their gods, and they would do this willingly because they were being treated so well. They would willingly become assimilated into Babylonian culture. And, and Nebuchadnezzar was so good at turning potential enemies into, into his own allies, he would actually later be able to send out these people, these conquered people, as his representatives, that they would go out in positions of leadership and represent Babylon, Babylonian culture 
to the, to the rest of the world. And we won't get there today, but that's exactly what happened to Daniel later in his life. He was sent out as a member of the king's service out into the rest of the world to export Babylonian culture. And so on top of that, Nebuchadnezzar would choose from the 10,000, he would choose the absolute cream of the crop. He would then select a small number of people who he would, he would uh, d- um, define as without, without defect. He would pick the best of the best of that 10,000. And so we'll pick that up in Daniel uh, chapter 1, verse 3. It'll pick it up there, and it says, Then the king ordered Ashpeneth, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. And the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. So Daniel, along with a few of his friends, were chosen by Nebuchadnezzar to be part of this kind of elite team. And they were to be trained for three years in everything Babylonian. And so we read through that story, and, and, we, and we see this kind of pattern emergent. And so what we see is that, first of all, Nebuchadnezzar decided that he was going to give them all new names. And so they, they had all these new names, Belteshazzar for, Belteshazzar, uh, Shazar for Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego for his friends. But here's the thing about that name and all of these names. These were names that would have been offensive to Daniel, would have been offensive to the people of Ju- Judah. For example, the name Belteshazzar. Bel was the name of a Babylonian god, and the, the word Teshazzar meant, my God will provide for me. So Daniel's new name literally meant that the god Bel was now the god of Daniel. That would have been an insult to Daniel and all of his beliefs. But Daniel seems to have accepted this. And I, I, I struggle with, like, why would Daniel accept this? Why would he, why would he seem okay with this? Because here's what I would have expected Daniel to do. I think, I, I think what I expected Daniel to do was he would stand up and he would announce to all of the people in the court, my name is Daniel, not Belteshazzar. Is that close? It was not close. That's, he would have stumbled on the word because it's the first time he heard it. And he would have said, listen, I, I, I come from the God Jehovah. Jehovah is my God. He freed us from Egypt. He established us in the promised land. I will never serve your God. I will never serve you. And then all the other people from, from Judah who were there would have started chanting his name and clapping and cheering, and then the guards would have dragged him out straight to the lion's den. That's not what happened at all. It seems as though Daniel accepted that name. And it may be most likely because he's a captive. He's a prisoner of war. He was the property of uh, Nebuchadnezzar. And let's be honest, you can't really control what people call you. Or I thought maybe he was just too timid, just wasn't willing to speak up. But then we, that, and, and the rest of the stories that we've read so far, it seems pretty harmless, doesn't it? He's going to begin a job training program. It's going to last three years. Even better, he's going to eat like a king. He's literally going to eat the same food that the king eats. And the truth is, Daniel's friends in this situation would be better off than they would have been if they'd stayed in, in Jerusalem. Their life will be better now. And so it's, it seems very strange to me when I read that. And then I read about all, I, I think to myself, I don't know why Daniel 
doesn't get angry, why Daniel doesn't respond to this thing. And, and again, I thought, well, maybe Daniel's just afraid. Maybe he's unwilling to say anything. But then we pick up in verse 8 this. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. And, you know, some other translations say it this way, Daniel was determined or had been determined not to eat the food. The New King James says that Daniel proposed in his heart not to defile himself. But the one I like best is the, is the translation that says he had made up his mind. He had made up his mind. Now, I don't know what the issue with the food was. Uh, when I read it, it seemed pretty innocuous. It was going to be great food available and lots of it. Um, and maybe it was because it's simply because it wasn't kosher, because Daniel would have been Jewish. Or maybe it was because the meats that he would have been given to eat would most likely have been uh, part of a sacrifice and would have been blessed by the gods of Babylon, because that was a common practice. I actually don't know. But what I do know is Daniel wasn't afraid to say something. But for whatever reason, he said something about the food. And it seems to be something pretty serious. I mean, in one sentence, in one verse, it uses the word defile twice. But I think what Daniel had discovered here was this idea that compromise doesn't make your problems go away. Problems just weakens your resolve. And so if you cheat once, it's going to be easier to cheat a second time. If you lie to your spouse once, it's going to be way easier to lie to your spouse a second time. If you talk trash about someone behind their back, it gets easier when you go to do it a second time. If you flirt with a coworker once, it's going to be way easier to do it a second time. I think. Okay. Well, we'll talk about that on the way home. It's good to talk about the sermon on the way home. We always seem to do that. Um, but here's what Daniel recognized. That, that they could change his clothes. They could change his haircut and his habits, his culture, his language that he spoke. And they could even change his name. But for some reason, Daniel knew that this he could not accept. That Daniel basically just simply went like this and said, I can't do that. And something in his conscience triggered. Because here's what it doesn't say about Daniel. It doesn't say that Daniel thought about it for a few days. It doesn't say that Daniel sought the advice of his friends. It doesn't say that Daniel poured through the scriptures looking for guidance. And it even doesn't say that Daniel had prayed about it. It simply said that Daniel had made up his mind. So he takes action. Again, without knowing how things would turn out, he trusted God and trusted his conscience. And you could even say that he trusted his guardrail. And so, you're, so he approaches Aspenath with a request. Now, let's just put this in context. Daniel's probably about 15 years old here. He's been taken captive by a powerful king. He's living in a place where he's being treated very well, and everyone around him seems really happy to be there. And so Daniel approaches his boss with a request, and this request must have sounded a lot like ingratitude. Remember, if any other invading army had captured Jerusalem, people like Daniel would have been the first to go. And he asks the chief court official, to allow him to not eat the king's food. And he simply says, it's sim and it's not like he just said, I don't like it. He said it wasn't good enough for him. It actually says twice in that one verse the word defile. And so the response Daniel should have expected was at the very least the back of Ashpenaz's hand and, a, and, and more likely a death sentence. And that's where the story gets really good. So in verse 9, it simply says this, now God had given the chief of staff both respect and affection for Daniel. I love this. Whenever I, whenever I read scripture in the Old Testament, I always look for this now God moment. Sometimes it says now God, sometimes but God, or sometimes it says then God, but it's all the same thing. 
It's when God intervenes in, in the lives of the people. And so it says it this way. Uh, for example, in Jonah, when Jonah runs from God and boards that boat, the Bible says, now God sent a storm. It happens with Noah following the flood. The Bible says, then God remembered Noah. It happens with David as he hides in a cave from Saul in the wilderness. The Bible says, but God hid David from him. It's that moment where God intervenes. And here's why it's such an important concept for us today, because these are the times in our lives when God, not, God can use guardrails not only to protect us, but also to direct us. And that was actually the name of the first message in our series, Guardrails, Directs, and Protects. And so much of what we've been talking about revolves around protecting, protecting us from regret, protecting us from difficult things in our lives. But we also know that God can use those same things to direct our lives, to direct our future. And so remember what we talked about in Ephesians 5 on the first week, I think it was right after Thanksgiving, we defined the word wise. And the way Paul defined the word wise was to say this, that living as wise meant understanding what God's will was for us and to choose to live within that will. In other words, not to veer off into one ditch or the, or the other. And so the now God moment here focuses on the idea that God can use our guardrails to not only protect us, but direct our lives as we move forward. It was Daniel's decision standing there in front of that chief official that changed the whole narrative. I mean, without that decision to listen to his conscience, there's no need for the book of Daniel because Daniel would have been like the other 9,999 six people uh, that were brought there who just chose to conform to the Babylonian culture and the Babylonian religion. The, the rest of the story, though, it goes pretty quick, but I think we need to finish it. It says this in uh, verse 10, but he responded, I'm afraid of my Lord. So this is Ashpenaz responding to David, I'm afraid of my Lord, and when he says Lord, he means Nebuchadnezzar, the king who has ordered that you eat this food and wine. If you become pale and thin compared to the other youths your age, I'm afraid the king will have me beheaded. Daniel spoke with the attendant who had been appointed by the chief of staff to look after Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Please, test us for 10 days on a diet of vegetables and water, Daniel said. At the end of the 10 days, see how we look compared to the other young men who are eating the king's food. Then make your decision in light of what you see. The attendant agreed to Daniel's suggestion and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, Daniel and his three friends looked healthier and better nourished than the young men who would be eating the food assigned by the king. So after that, the attendant fed them only vegetables instead of the food and wine provided for the others. And God gave these four young men an unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom. And God gave, God gave Daniel the special ability to interpret the meanings of visions and dreams. When the training period ordered by the king was complete, the chief of staff brought all of the young men to King Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and no one impressed him as much as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the royal service. And whenever the king consulted them in any matter requiring wisdom and balanced judgment, he found them 10 times more capable than any of the magicians and enchanters in his entire kingdom. Do you see it? Daniel's guardrail not only protected him from sinning against God by eating that food, but God was also able to use that decision to direct his life moving forward. And, and what a life it was. If you, if, you, if you leave here today and you want to finish reading the, the life of Daniel in the book of Daniel, it's a life that's so much more impactful than just the, the lion's den that we all hear about. And as you read through it, I'm sure you'd agree, it's not a life filled with regret. And why does Daniel, and who does Daniel give credit to for his ability to live as wise? 
to live understanding what God's will was for him in his life? Well, he tells us in chapter two. In chapter two, verse 20, it says this. He said, praise the name of God forever. Sorry, he is Daniel. Praise the name of God forever and ever, for he has all wisdom and power. He controls the course of world events. He removes kings and sets up other kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the scholars. He reveals deep and mysterious things and knows what lies hidden in darkness, though he is surrounded by light. I thank and praise you, God, of my ancestors, for you have given me wisdom and strength. You have told me, you have told me what we ask of you and revealed to us what the king demanded. Daniel knew. Daniel knew where his wisdom came from. It came from living a life in God's will. By, by being able to separate himself from the, from the others in the Babylonian court and say, this, this would not please my God, I can't do it. And God was able to take that decision of his and direct his entire life. And it wasn't just Daniel who would have benefited. We, uh, actually, if we jump ahead to uh, the, the Daniel chapter 4, verse 34, we see somebody else who gives God the glory for what happened in Daniel's life. It says this, after this time had passed, I... Nebuchadnezzar. That's Nebuchadnezzar who believed himself to be a god and the king of all of Babylon. He's saying this. After this time had passed, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven, my sanity returned, and I praised and worshiped the Most High and honored the one who lives forever. His rule is everlasting and his kingdom is eternal. He didn't say that to Bel. He didn't say that to any of the Babylonian gods. That Daniel's life was such a, such a life lived in, in the will of God, living for God, standing up for God, that God was able to use him to, to humble the highest man in the land. King Nebuchadnezzar uh, referred to himself as a god. He put himself, he put himself right up there with Bel and a lot of the other Babylonian gods. But on that day, after seeing the life of Daniel, after seeing who Daniel had become and how Daniel had lived his life, he himself gave glory to the God, our God, the God of Daniel. And all because Daniel had created a guardrail in his life, that God used to protect him when his faith was being shaken by Nebuchadnezzar in, that, in, in an attempt to assimilate him into Babylonian culture and to direct him to become such a role model of faith that, and wisdom that Nebuchadnezzar himself uh, came to acknowledge that our God is the one true God. And if we read the story of Daniel in the lion's den, we see the exact same thing playing out again and again. Daniel knowing when he just had to say, no, I can't do that having these guardrails in his life where he simply said, I won't go that far. And as we read through that life, it's an amazing story, but it all revolves around, but Daniel having faith, then God acting in his life. And so if we here today say, but Daniel, then God, you can just put your own name in there. You just say, but Rick, but then God. Think about the impact your life can have when you choose to put in place guardrails that allow you to stay in the will of God, stay in the center of that will of God where he would have you be, where he can use you to, to further his kingdom. Because quite simply, guardrails not only protect us, they direct us. Let's pray. Lord, I just want to thank you for an opportunity to share. I want to thank you for the scriptures that we can read into and, and find so much in there, Lord. That we can, we can look at Daniel's life and realize that Daniel... Daniel just knew what he could and couldn't do. He made up his mind that this was something he would not do. He would not defile himself. And Lord, we're just so thankful that Daniel lived that life because we can read about it today. And we can see what a life he lived standing up for you, standing up for his beliefs and trusting in you, Lord, 
that you would not only protect him, but direct his life. And we can see an entire kingdom, entire, entire pagan kingdom turn towards you. Thank you for that, Lord. And as we, as we head out this week, Lord, just Holy Spirit, we just ask you would, you, would keep, uh, you would keep this in our minds as we go out this week, that there's such an opportunity for us to live as wise, to live following your will. And that's what I really believe we all want, Lord. And so we just pray for that this week as we go out. Uh, Holy Spirit, you would just keep nudging and guiding and reminding us that uh, there, there's a way that we can live to please you. We just pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.